I'm Craig James, and this is Big Audacious Idea, the show about thinking big. We investigate the greatest questions of life, and we ponder the future. We also endeavor to foster abundant thinking during times of uncertainty. Welcome to the show. What the heck is a network? Did you know that the word network has 43 meanings? And the notion of the meanings of network matter to us now more than ever before. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Valdis Krebs to the show. Valdis is founder and chief scientist at OrgNet. He's an organizational consultant, data scientist, and developer of network analysis software. He has participated in hundreds of network projects and has trained thousands of people in the process and the use of software in performing social network analysis in communities, organizations, and cities across the globe. Valdis, thanks for joining the show. Thank you, Craig. It's good to be here. Good to have you, my friend. And so I gave you a little bit of a quick introduction, our listeners an introduction, but is there something you'd like to add, something you'd like to share about your background, your experiences, things our audience might not know about you? This year marks the 25th anniversary of our business, and we've been in business solely doing network analysis. We started this business in a garage in California, so it's the right place to start it. We weren't as fortunate as Google, who did the same thing, but we were never looking to be a large, large company. We just wanted to do interesting work. Before we go too much further, Valdis, we use terms quite a bit in technology and in our modern era, and the word network has an implicit meaning and understanding, but maybe we start with like the basic of basics. What the heck is a network in the first place? That's a good question because uh, network does have 43 meanings. The way we use network is usually a human network. I've started to use that term more and more, so to distinguish what, what we actually do. And a human network that functions in organizations or in communities or cities or places where there's groups of people together. And so inside a network, we have nodes, and a node is basically a person. And we have collections of nodes, and those can be groups. And in an organization, a group might be the marketing department, or it might be a project team. And then we also have links or ties, as they're sometimes called. And these are the connections between people. And ties can show a flow. So how information flows from one person to another or how knowledge is exchanged between two people or even things like support and affection. You know, somebody looks to someone else in the organization or in the community for support during tough times. I remember all this long ago when I first started learning interesting things about networks and humans and networks from you that there's this fascinating notion that human networks are different, but very much similar to other types of networks, electrical networks and so on, and that there are these natural tendencies that happen, whether human or not. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, there are some similarities, but there are also a lot of differences. And unfortunately, too many scientists and new researchers to the field think that all networks are the same, and so they can be treated the same. But human networks really are different. Human networks focus on 
what's called a small world network pattern. So in other words, we join together in, in small clusters, birds of a feather flock together. That's true amongst friends, amongst family, but also in organizations. You know, usually the HR people work with other HR people. They work with people outside the HR department, but most of their interaction is within the department. And many other networks like the power grid or the internet are built for efficiency. And so they're built, instead of a, in a small world style, they're built in a hub and spoke style. And a hub and spoke style is basically a hierarchy. It's, it's you know, there's a center node and then things flow out from that. And there might be other center nodes where things flow out from that. So it's almost like, you know, the top executive flows out to the vice presidents. Each vice president flows out to directors, down to managers, down to the regular employees. So am I understanding then there's a difference between the notion of a network hub and spoke kind of thing, and then there's the notion of a distributed picture where there are multiple facets and types of connections. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And again, it's not totally distributed. That's kind of the other <laughs> extreme that people sometimes fall into. It, the, the key is the clusters. We know people based on the people that we already know. We work with people based on those that we already work with. So our friends are also friends with each other, but our colleagues are also colleagues with each other. So we end up with these clusters. These clusters are connected either by bridges or by what we sometimes call boundary spanners, or sometimes the clusters overlap. So I'm a member of both cluster A and cluster B, so I'm a member of maybe both marketing and sales, and therefore I help move information and knowledge and ideas from one group to the other. I remember you saying once, Valdis, that when we look at these clusters, let's say cluster A and cluster B, and when we're trying to bridge intentionally, sometimes that can be a tricky business because the people who are in the center of the center of cluster A and get it best have a hard time bridging across to cluster B. Yet, if they're too much on the fringe of cluster A, well, they can bridge to B easily, but they don't really understand A as well as someone in the center. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And so, therefore, a key thing in, in networks is distance. So we don't want someone in the center being too far away from someone on the periphery because the people on the periphery tend to be connected inside the network and outside the network. They might be connected from cluster A to cluster B, from cluster A to customers, from cluster A to vendors, things like that. So yes, connecting the center person in cluster A to the center person in cluster B usually doesn't work. So we want one or two intermediaries, but never more. So this is sounding very scientific and specific and planful, even predictive, yet there's probably a lot of variability and unpredictability and beautiful serendipity. I think you speak to the notion of serendipity in this context. Serendipity, a lot of people look at that and they say, well, that's just luck. You know, you just happen to run into somebody that happens to hold a solution to the problem that you currently have. It's not just luck because 
serendipity actually resides in your network. And it resides in those one and two step distances away from you and mostly the two step because the people that you're directly connected to, so one step away, those people tend to know the same things that you know because you're always in direct contact and you're in contact with them, they're in contact with you, and they're in contact with each other. So that's kind of where the little echo chambers uh, form and, and the same information flows around and around. But now we get two steps away from the center and now we have people that are interested in what's going on in the center, but also have other interests and have other connections and have other knowledge because they have connections outside the cluster to clusters where maybe the problem that you have inside the cluster has already been solved. And you just need to discover that, oh, there's a solution out here. And now we're going to bring those people in and meet with the people in the center of our cluster and maybe we'll come up with a solution to our problem. Mm. Now, this isn't like uh, best practices where you just take something lock, stock and barrel and move it from one place to another. That doesn't work. Human uh, networks and human organizations and communities are very, very complex. So you can take learning that happens elsewhere and you could move it in somewhere else, but that itself is a learning process. And that itself is a process of adapting and changing. And again, it doesn't happen. It's not a cut and paste operation. Fascinating. So what I'm hearing here is that uh, there's a complexity. And I'm also hearing the notion of, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the idea of number of quantity of connections. And then there's the quality of, the quality of connection. You know, in our modern era, it's something to boast. I have whatever, 5,000 LinkedIn connections, but we can't physically have 5,000 quality relationships. Tell us about that quantity, quality balance thing. That's true because today's technology focuses on the quantity, but we as humans have not changed that much since we were living in caves. I mean, we're smarter, we have more culture, we understand things a little better, but physically our brains and the way we're wired hasn't changed that much. So we cannot support a larger network, even though we think we can because we have Facebook friends and we have, you know, all these emails we receive. And it's interesting, maybe you've heard of this number, it's called the Dunbar number, mm -hmm. yep. and it's uh, 150. And basically what Dunbar discovered was that uh, he originally did research on monkeys and chimpanzees and other social mammals. And he discovered that there's a part of the brain, the frontal lobe, that the size of the frontal lobe of a species of animal basically determines the network that they can monitor and understand. Hmm. And so he found with humans, it's, it's about 148, 150. He did this research before the internet. And so, of course, once the internet came along, everybody said, oh, well, let's repeat that research again, because I bet it's gone from 150 to like 350. Well, it hadn't. It basically stayed the same. Because this 150 number not only allows you to make 
connections with people, but also understand the connections amongst those people. So like, you know me, and I know you, but we both know that we knew George Nemeth. And we also know that we knew Ed Morrison, and there's other people in common. And we knew that Ed and George knew each other. So we have this much richer view of the network, and that's what's included in that 150. And our brains have not exploded in size since the internet. And so 150 before is basically still 150 now. I could see Valdis where a lot of people, including me here, I'm, I'm like, well, wait a second. You know, we have all this technology. Maybe there's a digital version of me that can handle more capacity and, you know, keep track of those relationships, even if I can't in my little brain. And I can tap that secondary brain that's up there in the cloud to do more Dunbarring for me. But obviously the answer is no, not really. So that speaks to back to quality. If 150 is 150, it's not 150 names, it's 150 relationships, it sounds like. And there's the distinction or the difference. Well, it is about 150 names. And again, it, it varies. Some people have smaller networks, some have a little larger, but basically revolves around 150, but it's 150 nodes and their interrelationships. Maybe not all their interrelationships, but most of the important ones. Let's look at another thing. So Facebook is known to have promiscuous connecting, let's call it. And you know, everybody kind of connects to everybody and, and you're connected to all your all the people that you knew in high school and and all that. And so a lot of people in Facebook have 500 friends and have 1,000 friends and have 3,000 friends, 5,000 friends and all that. And Facebook actually did some research on this about five, six years ago. They don't make it real well known that they did this research because it doesn't fit in with their marketing. But basically what they did is they, they hired some sociologists from academia and they said, well, how big are the real networks here on Facebook? And what they did is they looked at how people actually interact with each other on Facebook. So if you and I are connected on Facebook and we never really interact, it's not a true friendship. But if you and I are constantly sending stuff back and forth and we're chatting back and forth, ah, that's a sign that Craig and Baldus really are friends. And what they found, and this was again back around 2012, but I'm sure the number hasn't changed that much, is they found that the average male network was 55 people and the average female network was 65 people. And these were actual friends. These are actually people that were interacting with each other, showing affection and interest in each other. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast.
how does the electronification of our relationships and connections, let's assume we could physically be connected to 65 or 55 people and use old fashioned technology, write letters, make phone calls. But now we still have this added, maybe they're pseudo connections or semi connections and we have this broad base of connectability globally. How is it different, even though we're still limited by Dunbar, how is it different now in the last couple decades than it was, let's say when you and I were growing up? So we have Dunbar, and the limit of our brain size, which hasn't changed much. We also have this limit called 24 hours and seven days a week. And then we still have this limit that, you know, required sleep during that period. Those things that would allow us time and energy to expand our network haven't changed, even though the technology has. So I don't know how often this comes to you, but I often have a conversation with somebody and they'll mention you know, Sam Smith. And I'll go, oh yeah, Sam Smith. I follow him on Twitter. But the fact that I follow him and that Sam Smith might also have an interest in networks or in politics or in Cleveland or, or something that I have an interest in is why I follow him. But if Sam Smith and I were to be crossing paths in Cleveland Hopkins Airport, we would walk right past each other because we don't know each other. We've never seen each other. We've never really talked to each other. And we probably wouldn't recognize each other. And so we have a lot of these, we have a lot more awareness of what's out there. And we have more awareness of people that have similar interests to us. But we still don't have a relationship with those people. We still can't talk to those people. I don't know if you remember in the early days of LinkedIn, but in the early days of LinkedIn, you used to be able to connect to somebody. And then you used to be able to ask that person to connect you to someone else. Right. Mm -hmm. And they don't have that anymore. And the reason they don't have that anymore is because it doesn't work. Because what would happen is people would connect on LinkedIn. And again, they practice promiscuous linking there too. You would connect to somebody on LinkedIn that maybe in some way was similar and they invited you and you said, oh, okay, fine, I'll connect to this person. Or you met this person at a conference and they gave you a business card and you spent five minutes with them and uh, all of a sudden you're connected to them on LinkedIn. But now LinkedIn is asking you to do something for this person. And of course, you don't know the person. This person's still a stranger. You're lucky if you even remember their name or how you got connected to this person but now you have to do something and now you have to introduce this person to someone in your network. Now that takes a risk. Right. And you don't trust this person. And so you're not going to do it. You might do it if it's, it's not a big deal. But, you know, if this person is looking for a job and this person has similar skills to you and you absolutely don't know that person, you are not going to introduce that person to your boss. Right. Because you have no idea how this person's going to work out. So the idea of connecting versus knowing, as we continue our conversation and hit the back nine, if you might, let's set our sights toward the current and the future. And a lot's going on in the world. Change is a overused term, but boy, the, the changing pace of change is striking. Uh, our show is timeless, so dependent upon when one listens to this chat we're having, Valdis, we're either still in pandemic or past it. A lot of things going on. 
And so I suppose this discussion, what are the sort of the implications as we look toward the future, good or bad, when it comes to lines of demarcation and borders or lack thereof, when it comes to how we govern and connect and solve problems as humans or not? How does network play a role in the future, do you think? Well, yeah, network is going to continue to play a big role. And the thing that's interesting about now versus a year ago is that a year ago, we were busy building networks to make human networks more resilient, more efficient, more effective, more agile, more adaptive, all those are good words. Because we wanted ideas and information and knowledge and learning to quickly get from the place where it is to the place where it needs to be. And then along comes this pandemic and all of a sudden we have something in the network that we don't want to spread. We don't want it to spread. We want to isolate it. We want to stop it. So all of a sudden, you know, we got these great networks for spreading things. And now we have to think, well, how do we now adapt this network to not spreading things? Uh, you know, how do we build in firewalls? How do we build in drawbridges that, that we can pull up? And, you know, some of that we did by isolating ourselves in our homes. And unfortunately, this got a bad word. They call this social distancing. But it wasn't really social distancing. It was physical distancing. And that's what really matters because you and I right now cannot give each other COVID, even if one of us had it. We don't. We can't because we're physically distant. You know, we're interacting over an electronic means. But you and I are in each other's social network. So disease does not spread through the social network. It spreads through the contact network. It requires physical proximity, physical contact, physical exchange. You know, now we have to look at our networks not only as, as social networks or colleague professional networks, but we have to look at contact networks because now you can get sick and bring it home to your family from an absolute stranger who you have absolutely no idea who he or she is or where they came in contact with you. So we have to look at networks in a new way of some things we want to flow, other things we don't want to flow, but when push comes to shove, we want to monitor what's flowing in our own networks. Fascinating. So, of course, when one thinks and pictures network, we think intrinsically about more and expand and bigger and further out. And what I hear you saying is understanding the science of networks, human and otherwise, especially in this case, social versus physical, these dynamics of networks and the science of network if we reverse some of that thinking, the understanding of these principles can help us contain, restrain, and limit versus expand. Right. And so, so some interesting research. You know, back in the old days, pre-pandemic, it was always good to be the best connected person in the network. But now they're finding that the best connected person in the contact network gets sick first. So that's exactly the opposite. You know, in the old network where knowledge and ideas and information was flowing, the best connected person got smart first. So that was a good place to be. 
But now in the contact network where either disease or disinformation is flowing, the best connected person gets sick first. They either get sick from the disinformation or physically sick from the disease. So, Valdis, as we conclude, what to do? One of the things we love to do here in the show is to ask our guests, brilliant guys like you, to issue a challenge or provoke a thought. You know, what would a listener be able to do or not do tomorrow and the next day? What would you challenge them to think? That kind of thing. Well, I think looking at your social network, your professional network, I still think that the advice we give everybody, connect on your similarities and benefit from your differences, is still very useful and will continue to be very useful. Because it's important to mix those similarities and differences. It's easy to connect with someone who's very similar to you. Again, birds of a feather flock together. Sociologists call that homophily. But if you just connect with others that are very similar to you, that's good for friends and for family because then you'll have less strife and less disagreements. But in work, you want ideas and innovation, so you need that difference in there. So there you need to allow more difference in, but you can't connect to somebody that's totally different than you because then you can't communicate with them. So you need that similarity and in, in the workplace, in the professional networks, you also need that difference. And so the better you can mix that together, the better it is. So connect on your similarities, benefit from your differences is still a very good piece of advice for, for anybody in the work world. As far as diseases go, you know, beware of your contacts and suspect every contact. You know, suspect the people in your family because they might have been out contacting others that may not have been aware that they're sick. So you have to become very careful on the contacts you make. In the social and the professional network, you also have to be careful because, again, you only have so much time and energy to make contacts. So you want to make sure that if you're allowed 150 contacts, better make sure that those are good ones and make sure that they're not redundant or they're not uh, ones that are totally uh, dormant. Brilliant insights, thoughts and recommendations. I'm hearing conscious, aware, and careful. We've been listening to Valdis Krebs, and this is Big Audacious Idea. I'm Craig James, your host. Thanks for listening. And Valdis, thanks for being with us. Thanks a lot, Craig. So there's the notion of efficient networks, and then there's the power of effective networks. Now this really applies when we're talking about the human condition. And Valdis helped us see that we need to think strategically about how we leverage networks for good. We need to bridge. Networks can be boundary expanders should we choose. And we need to connect more than ever before. And it's not just, quote, connect, but the quality of connection. In fact, if we're not careful and we're sloppy, if you might, or promiscuous, as Valdis calls it, about our network connections, suddenly we start blurring our quality of connections and meaningful bridging. Sometimes great number of connections can be dangerous. 
We look at a pandemic or disinformation. The more connected, the more it spreads, and that's not a good thing. And so in a way, what we need to do in our modern era and as we look to the future is think about actually constraining and contracting connections when we need to in order to contain and, well, hinder bad things from spreading too quickly. I'm Craig James, your host, and this has been Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you liked what you heard and you enjoyed our chat with Valdis, tweet me at cjamescatstrat. And further, if you enjoyed the podcast, rate it in your podcast app. It really helps us out. Big Audacious Idea is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about our podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. I'm grateful as host to be part of a team. And I'd like to thank some special people on this show, our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, production director, Bridget Coyne, and of course, my co-executive producer, Michael D'Aloya. Thanks for listening. Until next time, don't just think audacious, be audacious. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor. And every week, I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.